You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. A Vancouver City Councilor is putting forward a motion that, if approved, will impact the speed all drivers in the province are allowed to travel on residential side streets. Right now, that speed limit is 50 kilometers an hour in most areas. Our Paul Johnson is live with more on the possible change and the reasoning behind it. Paul. Well, Chris, the Vancouver City Councillor uh, who's floating this idea is pointing to a study that's found that if you get hit by a car and you're a pedestrian and that car is traveling at 30 kilometers an hour or less, your survivability is actually 90%. But as the speed goes up from there, survivability drops drastically. The aftermath of a fatal accident where a pedestrian was hit by a car in Vancouver. There have been four such accidents in Vancouver so far this year. About 60 are expected province-wide in 2019. Could a new idea in Vancouver lower these numbers? So it's not an especially onerous speed limit, uh, but it saves lives. Vancouver City Councillor Pete Fry wants to lower the speed limit on residential side streets to 30 kilometers an hour, down from the current default limit of 50. So it's just an opportunity to make things safer. It's not really a nanny straight intrusion. If you want to drive fast, you can still do so on highways. Fry recognizes that most of the serious pedestrian accidents don't happen on side streets, but says anything that can reduce accidents is positive. To make that work, though, they'd need to get the province on board. And today, B.C.'s Minister of Transportation reacted with a maybe. Very interested that Vancouver is uh, calling for this. I know that a number of communities also want to see a reduction in speed limits, something that we continue to assess. While legislators may need a while to make up their minds, Vancouverites we talked to were unanimous. 30 kilometers an hour is plenty fast. Thank you. Excellent. Absolutely fantastic. Well, I'm not thumbs up, but I certainly can understand that argument. Yeah, I would say slower is probably a bit better. Slower is kind of how the wheels of uh, bureaucracy turn, Paul. When would this happen if it's going to happen? Yeah, this one could be a bit of a long and winding road. Uh, it's going to start this coming week, next week rather, uh, at Vancouver City Hall. Councillor Pete Fry is going to introduce this. If the council approves it, they want to start out with a pilot program on a single street in Vancouver that's already 50 kilometers an hour. They lower it to 30 kilometers an hour. They'd see what happens there if people like that. But the next step, and this is the big one, they have to get Victoria to approve this. And then this raises this question of whether this would end up being a province-wide thing. Now, individual cities would be able to raise that limit to 50 kilometers an hour where they felt they needed to, but otherwise everything would be 30. The default we'll would be see. 30. Yeah, okay, thanks very much. I appreciate that, Paul. Paul Johnson in Vancouver. A disagreement between first responders in one metro Vancouver city is leading to a new protocol when there's an emergency. Hopefully, it'll end an ongoing dispute between Port Coquitlam firefighters and paramedics over who should arrive first. But Catherine Urquhart explains why not everyone is satisfied with this solution. When you're facing a medical emergency, you call 911. 
But if that emergency happens in a civic facility in Port Coquitlam, you may need to call 911 twice. Disappointing to see that there's going to be a duplicate 911 call. In a memo this week, Port Coquitlam Fire Chief Nick Delmonico calls the new two-stage 911 protocol for city facilities a win-win solution. Staff's first call to 911 will be made for a medical emergency, dispatching an ambulance. A second call to 911 will then ask for fire, so Port Coquitlam Fire and Emergency Services can send out its appropriate response. Whatever is faster responds first anyways, so I don't, I don't know that you'd have to call again. I guess phoning once and asking for uh, or telling the situation and having them respond would be enough. The new protocol comes after Delmonico released a controversial memo in March, instructing city staff to ask for fire instead of an ambulance in case of a medical emergency. BC paramedics admit response times need to be reduced. We have staffing issues, particularly in the Lower Mainland, and that is going to translate into uh, longer response times. We've been advised that there have been some recent hirings to fill positions to address that. Also weighing in on the new 911 protocol, BC's health minister. Ask for the ambulance. It's in the best interest of the person who needs help to do that, and there shouldn't be any ambiguity about that. Will Port Coquitlam's new 911 protocol reduce response times when emergencies happen on civic property? Or will it cause confusion and tie up emergency phone lines? This experiment sure to be closely monitored. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Meantime, in Vancouver, police are rolling out a new program to improve response to addresses off the beaten path. Project Landmark is being launched in the Strathcona neighborhood. 400 residents are receiving free address plates in an effort to more clearly identify the laneway addresses in behind. The goal is to better help first responders get to where they need to go in emergency situations. A decision on the fate of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion will be delayed to give more time for consultations with Indigenous groups. The federal government pushing back the decision until June. If approved, the existing pipeline between Edmonton and Burnaby would triple in size. Keith Baldry has reaction from both our Premier and Alberta Premier-elect Jason Kenney, who've been at odds over this issue. Like a movie that just keeps playing over and over, the saga of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project has yet yet another chapter. Another delay before the federal government makes a final decision on whether to greenlight it or not. More consultations are needed with First Nations along the pipeline's route. We uh, value and respect the diversity of opinions among Indigenous communities. Our obligation is to ensure that we have adequately fulfilled our duty to consult, and that's the test that uh, we, will, we will apply to conclude these consultations. A key and new player in this never-ending drama is Alberta's new Premier. Jason Kenney has made building that pipeline his top priority, but he's fine with the latest delay. I... Um, uh, agreed with the Prime Minister that they need to make sure that they cross every T and dot every I when it comes to discharging the federal government's uh, duty to consult. We certainly don't want them having to go back to the drawing board a third time. And BC's Premier keeps repeating his off-stated position, build more refineries, although that remains a remote possibility. We need more refined product if we're going to reduce our costs. 
the Trans Mountain Pipeline is not about moving refined product to BC, it's about moving diluted bitumen, which will not drive your Volkswagen. It's to go somewhere else, not stay here. Keith Baldry joins us now live from Victoria. Keith, uh, we hear the Premier talking about the need to build more refineries, but they're incredibly expensive. Uh, how realistic is that? Yeah, every energy analyst I talk to in research uh, say refineries are a thing of the past. Uh, we, we used to have 40 of them in Canada in the 1970s. We're down to 19. One hasn't been built in this country since 1984, not since 1976 in the United States. And one of the big reasons you point out is the expense, a minimum $10 billion. And oil companies in the past were able to capitalize these costs over a period of decades. There's not decades left in the oil industry. Fossil fuels are, are sort of in the sunset years, still decades to go, but not enough to finance some of these large projects. It's another sign, I think, Chris, of uh, more and more evidence that the NDP government really, at the end of the day, doesn't have a lot of tools to fight this pipeline other than that court case. Refineries just simply aren't one of the options. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Right. Keith Baldry, live in Victoria. Now, the landlord of a Penticton man accused in a quadruple homicide in that community is speaking out tonight. Tony Friesen was working on his property at the time of the first shooting and remembers the sound of gunfire. We're installing a window and all of a sudden you hear bang and you kind of think you did something and uh, then there was a pause and then two more bangs. His former tenant, John Britton, is now accused of killing Rudy Winter while he was pruning a tree across the street from Britton's home. Then he allegedly drove to the other end of town and gunned down three more people, all of them neighbors of Britton's ex-wife. Friesen says while he didn't know John on a personal level, he was a model tenant. The tenant everybody would want because there's no trouble. Always uh, pays rent on time, um, kept a good place, uh, no issues. The other tenants in the building uh, have very good, had a very good view of him. Um, and they're just as shocked as I am. Friesen says Britain has been living in the rental unit for the past five years since he separated from his wife. Britain's been charged with three counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, and his next court appearance is May 8th. More details tonight about a pilot project to sell beer and wine aboard some B.C. ferries. This summer, you'll be able to unwind with a boozy beverage on three vessels traveling between Swartz Bay and Tawasson. And while many are wondering what took so long... Kylie Stanton explains why it's also raising some concerns. The horn sounds and the countdown begins. Over the years, passengers aboard BC ferries have found ways to pass the time. I just like the scenery and, and entertaining myself. You know, go for coffee. But soon, alcohol could be in the mix. Drinking? Yes, drinking. Global News has obtained this internal memo to BC Ferry staff detailing plans for a pilot project. Starting this June, beer and wine will be sold on board the Spirit of Vancouver Island, the Spirit of British Columbia and the Coastal Celebration. We are always looking for ways to enhance our customer experience on board and we've heard from our customers that they would like to enjoy a glass of wine or beer with their meal while they're sailing with us. So we thought we'd give it a try. Of course, guidelines are in place. There will be a two-drink limit per passenger, and they must be purchased with a meal in the Pacific Buffet. Sales will only start after 11 a.m. to those who are of legal drinking age. On top of that, service staff will receive serving-it-right training. 
but it will also be up to the passengers to regulate themselves. For me as Minister of Transportation, that is my first priority. That anybody who is uh, having a glass of wine uh, is safe when they're getting in the car. But there's concern that may not always be the case. People don't always have willpower, right? So just invites problems. Mad Canada agrees. We want to make sure that when people are going to the vehicles, that people are are trained to be able to identify anybody who's going to be possibly, you know, impaired, and and making that call to 911 or making that call to the authorities, so that way that person doesn't drive impaired. BC Ferries says the pilot will help to address these concerns. If successful, it could be expanded to other sailings. At the same time, creating potential for a new revenue stream. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Premier John Horgan is acknowledging today he's behind on one of his key election promises when it comes to education. The Premier announcing that construction will finally begin on an expansion of Surrey's Sullivan Elementary, nearly $10 million to create 200 more student spaces. Horgan admits he's fallen behind on his promise to stop portable use in Surrey within four years, but he blames the city's fast growth and inaction by the previous government. We had a Supreme Court decision that uh, struck down actions by the previous government with respect to class size, which made a whole host of new challenges for the district and, in fact, districts right across the province. City staff in Vancouver asking for a bit more time before a ban on single-use plastics and styrofoam containers. Many businesses say they still need to find affordable replacements. Jordan Armstrong has the new deadlines and reaction from a retailer that's already made the switch. Here at Nada Cafe and Grocery on East Broadway in Vancouver, they're already zero waste. Everything is reusable. If you want a coffee to go, it comes in this mason jar. And the only straws here are metal or glass. For them, it seems to work well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially when you see it on the back end and how little waste we produce. We have a few bins in the back. One of them is trash, and we don't even fill half of it every day. But the city of Vancouver says many other businesses have indicated they're not ready yet for bans on styrofoam containers and plastic straws. So two bans, which were supposed to take effect June 1st, will likely be delayed until next year. It will be up to council to vote on that next week. City staff is recommending the ban on styrofoam cups and takeout containers be pushed back to January 1st, 2020. But charitable food vendors would be given an additional year to comply. Also, the ban on plastic straws is now proposed to begin in April 2020. We are currently conducting a consultation with businesses and nonprofits who'd be affected by the bylaws. We've heard that there are some, there may be some cost increases, for example, to switch away from foam or to find alternatives to straws. But we've also learned that uh, Vancouverites many support uh, paying a slight increase in uh, a recyclable or compostable alternative. What is a slight increase? A few cents. The city has yet to announce a ban on single-use plastic bags, but city staff say it is something they're working on, and we can expect more details in November. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. One of the most successful craft brewers in the Lower Mainland has just been dealt a blow by the city it calls home. Four Winds Brewing wants to expand, but the plan was rejected by Delta City Council. And as Aaron MacArthur reports, that has the company considering a move to a more beer-friendly location. Four Winds Brewing has been so successful over the last six years, they've run out of room to grow. Crammed into a Tilbury industrial park, the family-run operation 
had plans for a full-service restaurant and brewery in the new Southlands development. City Council said no. Definitely a, you know, frustrating to hear of uh, City Council and, and Mayor's decision to deny our proposal. Development at Southlands is an issue that has stretched back decades. With construction finally underway, Four Winds was going to be the anchor tenant. But the scope of the project, 27,000 square feet, proved to be too much for some in the community and ultimately City Council. The application is defeated. It would be an opportunity uh, to get a big anchor tenant in like Four Winds, create jobs, get agritourism involved. While Delta is turning down a brewery, there are communities tripping over themselves to bring in this type of business. The craft beer industry employs 4,500 people and accounts for hundreds of millions of dollars in economic activity. Beer tourism is something very viable that's bringing dollars into the economy in BC. It's bringing people into the community, and that's the part that, uh, that we're most proud of. There are strong voices in the community supporting the brewery, at least reworking its proposal. Meanwhile, Four Winds is looking at its options. And for the first time since it was founded, that might mean not being in Delta. You know, that's our home, that's where we're from. We were raised there, we live there now, we're raising our families there, and uh, we, we would love to stay there. Um, but if, if that's not a possibility for us to, to, to build the type of facility that we need to, to prosper as a business, we may have to look elsewhere. No plans to make drastic changes in the short term. The crammed tasting room, always open for business, if you can find a seat. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Three world-renowned climbers are missing and presumed dead, swept away by an avalanche in the Rocky Mountains near the BC-Alberta border. Search and rescue crews came to that tragic conclusion after flying over the peak the three had been climbing in Banff National Park. Global's Krista Dow reports. The rain is starting to come down here, but the conditions much calmer than that of Howe's Peak, a mountain range located about five kilometers west of Icefields Parkway that presumably claimed the lives of three very experienced mountaineers. Parks Canada says conditions in that area are extremely dangerous with high winds and precipitation and with additional avalanches being triggered, recovery efforts are currently not possible. The three world-renowned mountain climbers are presumed dead, believed to have been killed in an avalanche triggered on Wednesday. Parks Canada says the men were attempting to climb the east face of Howe's Peak in Banff National Park. It is an extremely difficult climb requiring advanced mountain experience. The men were reported missing, prompting crews to launch an air search and found signs of multiple avalanches and climbing equipment in the region. We're looking for a good weather window so that Parks Canada crews along with Alpine helicopters can properly assess all of the different mountain hazards that exist. Um, the biggest being avalanches at this particular location. Global News has confirmed the identity of the men, American Jess Ross Kelly, Austrian David Lama, and Hans Jörg Auer. The Alpine community is in mourning. The men are considered expert climbers in their field and have conquered incredibly difficult peaks, including Mount Everest and the Himalayas. A portion of the Icefield Parkway has been closed for avalanche control work. Now, Parks Canada says that's unrelated to the avalanche triggered on Wednesday, but with some slopes still holding plenty of snow, Parks Canada say there's an even greater risk of avalanche. Krista Dow, Global News. No collusion, no obstruction. <laughs> 
That is Donald Trump's reaction to today's release of the Mueller report into possible Russian interference in the 2016 election. But Democrats still are demanding to see the entire unredacted report. Now, despite what Donald Trump says, there's still lots of evidence he attempted to derail the investigation. Mueller's team reports the only reason Trump didn't succeed is because some in the administration refused to obey him. Nearly two years in the making, special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia report is finally public with redactions. According to the report, when President Trump learned that Mueller had been appointed in May of 2017, he panicked, launching an expletive, saying, oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. In Mueller's 448-page report, he details several examples of potential obstruction of justice, including the firing of FBI Director James Comey and one instance where the president directed then-White House lawyer Don McGahn to order Mueller's firing. McGahn refused. The report says that the president's efforts were mostly unsuccessful, largely because the people around him declined to carry out orders. But that does not exonerate him. Mueller writing, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit obstruction of justice, we would so state. Still, President Trump declaring victory. I'm having a good day, too. It was called... No collusion, no obstruction. (laughs) Mueller found no criminal conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia, something highlighted today by Attorney General William Barr, echoing a frequent phrase from the president. As he said from the beginning, there was, in fact, no collusion. That, not sitting well with Democrats, also upset the president's lawyers got a look at the report earlier this week, days before Congress. The special counsel made clear that he did not exonerate the president. And the responsibility now falls to Congress to hold the president accountable for his actions. Strengthening their calls to see the full report without redactions. And Barr will be on Capitol Hill early next month to testify before Congress. And Democrats are officially calling for Mueller to come and testify at some point, too. Barr says he has no problem with the special counsel speaking to Congress. Blaine Alexander, NBC News, Washington. Just days after the fire in France's Notre Dame Cathedral, New York police arrested a man who tried to enter St. Patrick's Cathedral with gasoline and lighter fluid. Police say Mark Lamparello parked in front of the church on Fifth Avenue Wednesday night and was stopped by a security guard as he tried to carry the flammable items into the church. The 37-year-old philosophy professor told police he was taking a shortcut through the cathedral because his car had run out of gas, but police say his car was not empty and he's now been charged with attempted arson and trespassing. In if Metro Vancouver ever gets Uber, passengers could be protected by some new safety measures. A new Uber app will now send a notification to riders to remind them to check the driver and the vehicle. That alert will include the driver's name, photo, license plate, and the make and model of the car. The new feature comes just weeks after a University of South Carolina student was killed after mistakenly getting into the wrong car. The new app rolled out in South Carolina today. In Health Matters tonight, a Courage to Come Back Award winner in the medical category, Kate Palmer, has an extremely painful neuroinflammatory disease that most people have never even heard of. But as Catherine Urquhart reports, the Nanaimo mother hasn't let that stop her from raising a family and co-founding a charity. Kate Palmer and her husband juggle three kids, demanding for anyone, but especially because the 42-year-old mom has complex regional pain syndrome. 
CRPS for me has been quite devastating, obviously. Um, I've struggled with it for, for a long time. For Kate and others with CRPS, the neuroinflammatory disease results in burning and throbbing pain, sensitivity to touch, joint swelling, and stiffness. Usually triggered by an injury, it's ranked one of the most painful conditions on the McGill pain scale. On a tough day, it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to feel hopeful knowing that I have to live in this amount of pain every moment for the rest of my life. Every day, Kate pushes through the pain, choosing not to take opioids. She also dedicates time to the CRPS Hope and Awareness Foundation, which she co-founded. We focus on um, increasing education and awareness in the general public because most people have never heard of the disease. Mm. There isn't really a whole lot of understanding for the context of what it means to live with the disease. This Nanaimo mom of three determined to help others as she stoically fights complex regional pain syndrome. How do you feel about winning the award? <laughs> I'm obviously very honored. I've read some of the other stories of the other uh, recipients and I feel quite honored to be included in such a, uh, an amazing group of women. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. And yet more great stories. Tomorrow we'll introduce you to Harriet Ronigan, who rebuilt her life after a devastating car crash almost killed her. That's coming up tomorrow. A lost polar bear has become a social media sensation in Russia. Residents of an eastern village were stunned when they saw the bear climbing onto shore hundreds of kilometers away from its usual habitat. At first, the bear wanted nothing to do with the people, even when they tried to feed it. Eventually, it did eat some fish thrown to it by residents. Greenpeace believes the bear drifted here on an ice floe. Authorities are now preparing to tranquilize it and airlift it back to its usual territory. And coming up right after the forecast, a man who will probably never run out of golf balls. Hasn't been much golf weather around here lately, but maybe that'll change on the long weekend. Let's check in with Christy Gordon right now and a look outside. Christy. Thanks, Chris. You're right. Soggy one today, that's for sure. Looking off in the distance, some brigs, but I'll tell you, that's not much of one. And I'll show you that on the radar imagery. We've just got moisture funneling right into our region. There seems to be a bit of a dry patch right across Metro Vancouver, but the rain will be on and off through the overnight as we deal with this atmospheric river through till tomorrow morning. But there is some breaks in store for us this weekend. So lots to look forward to still. I want to show you this though. Rainfall warning in place still for uh, central and east of uh, Fraser Valley. 40 to 70 is the total. So starting from last night right through until tomorrow morning. So we've already seen 20 to 30 and we still have another 20 to 30 on the way till tomorrow morning. But it will ease off throughout the morning hours. Uh, by noon I think you'll start to see a bit of a break and we should see some afternoon sunshine. Here's a look at southern BC majority of the uh, moisture is really focused along the mountain ranges with a little bit of a rain shadow in the interior regions. But this is really interesting because this moisture is really reflective of the fire danger rating map right now showing a very low rating across southern regions. However, across the north, we're starting to see a change with a moderate in through the BC Peace River area. And in fact, there are four new fires being reported in the Cassiar region, which is northwestern BC. These are overwintering fires that have been 
reignited or have come awake. And these are fires from last season that are now coming awake. And that's giving you an idea of how dry it is and what it's uh, going to, and this is what it's going to be like through the weekend. So uh, BC Wildfire Service is actually urging people to exercise caution when doing outdoor burning this weekend. And the reason is because we're expecting some winds, we're expecting dry conditions and a low relative humidity. So please be careful across northern BC, especially the BC Peace River area. You can see the forecast there not showing any moisture. Still a chance of showers along coastal regions, but across the south we'll see some rain. But it will be mainly in the morning and that's the same case across the south coast with breaks of sunshine tomorrow afternoon through our Saturday and our Easter Sunday. Back to showers though on Monday. And I'll leave you with a nice shot, a gorgeous shot actually, of a rainbow and a whale blowing. Uh, this is from Haida Gwaii. Thank you to Mary for that one. Gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Mary. And thanks, Christy. Well, a lot of people collect golf balls, but one South Carolina man is in a class of his own. Take a look. Not only does Doug Coop own about 15,000 of them, he has them organized, categorized, and alphabetized and displayed on custom-made shelves. Some are from the nearly 500 golf courses he's played. Others were given to him by friends. And yes, he does have a favorite from that golf club that doesn't actually exist. My favorite ball is right there, is Bushwood Country Club, Caddyshack. I mean, if you're going to have a favorite ball, might as well be Caddyshack. Remember that? I remember, Caddy, uh, I, could, I could pretty much recite the movie. Really? Oh, yeah. How many times have you seen it? Uh, many times. Many times. Before we ask you to do that, first of all, last month, Global BC and the Vancouver International Auto Show ran a contest. Maybe you remember it. We wanted to give away a brand new electric car, and this afternoon, the winner picked up her prize. On behalf of Thank the, the Chevy dealers of British Columbia and the new car dealers and the Vancouver Auto Show. And Thank of course, you. Global. And Global, of course. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Mary Daniele of Burnaby getting the keys to her 2019 Chevy Bolt EV at Carter GM in Burnaby from the New Car Dealers Association of BC and the Vancouver International Auto Show. She couldn't be more pleased. Cool no little kidding. Car. Drive it over here and plug it in. We've got a plug in. Mm -hmm. All right, here's Squire. All right. You don't want me to do the entire Caddyshack Do film? just a little Bill Murray as he's... Well, Bill Murray always... He had the... Murray made all the little plastic explosives look like the yeah. gopher. That's right. Yeah. All right. Here's Squire. Okay. Uh, yeah, Whitecaps. Well, I know. They finally right. won a game. Well, you knew they'd have to win sooner or later. Right. Uh, and you know what? You know what? You know what? You can't spell Whitecaps without a W. But until last night, they didn't have a W this year. And Vancouver broke the spell by giving LAFC their first L of the year. It's kind of like Sesame Street now. one nothing the final. The Whitecaps were hanging on a bit in the second half, but the pressure style that Mark DeSantos likes to employ worked enough in the first half to give Vancouver the goal it needed. And the only goal was a bit of K-pop. Inbaum, the South Korean star, scored his first ever goal for the Whitecaps. He's getting more and more comfortable with the North American game. Uh, now he and his teammates will have to get used to MLS travel because Vancouver's off to Orlando for a game Saturday afternoon. And because of the short time between games, the head coach barely slept last night. I have a problem with games, right? We, uh, I'm very, I connect very quick with the next game. Uh, so 
did I enjoy a lot the win? A little bit. Um, my head started last night thinking about Orlando. That, that's just who I am and how I'm made. And um, my focus now and our guys' focus is uh, against Orlando. Game five, Connor Hallibuck and the Jets. In the NHL playoffs at the series tied 2-2, I think whoever wins game five wins about 80% of the series. 12 seconds and they score. Jets, Adam Lowry, 1-0 Winnipeg. And then Kevin Purple Hayes. Excuse me while he scores in this guy. Actually, it's now 2-0 in the second period for Winnipeg. Alex Ovechkin, don't challenge him to a fight, whatever you do. Capitals against Canes. This is uh, game four. Carolina looking to tie it up. How many times has he scored from that part of the ice on a power play? 1-1. But then just before the end of the second period, Tavo Teravainen is open. Scores. Ball game. Series tied 2-2. Carolina has won their two home games. The Vancouver Giants were the best team in the Western Conference in the regular season. They swept Victoria out of round two of the Western Hockey League playoffs. So you would think that should set up very nicely for round three against Spokane. But the Chiefs are on a roll, and this is the kind of team that could become a giant killer if Vancouver is not careful. Josh on the breakout. Nielsen up the right side. Backhander, and he scores. The Giants beat the Chiefs three of four times during the regular season, but Spokane has certainly taken its play to a higher level in the playoffs. They knocked off Portland and then division-leading Everett in just five games each to set up this Western Conference Final against the Giants. During this playoffs, they've really uh, added that kind of grit and uh, work ethic to become a really good team. So, um, yeah, so we got to be able to maintain their speed and uh, just take time away from them because when they have time, they can make really good plays. So we got to be on top of that. Let's go! Spokane's also been lethal with the man advantage. They have 12 power play goals in 25 opportunities for a 48% success rate. So somehow, the Giants have to play the Chiefs hard physically without landing in the penalty box. You got to walk that line, and that's that's part of uh, you know being where you're at right now. As far as being a top four team in the playoffs, you, you know everybody's got to they've got to be aware of that. But they've got to have themselves very well prepared in order to walk that line. But enough about the Chiefs. The Giants are in the Western Conference Finals for the first time since 2010. They've won six straight after a bit of a first-round stumble against Seattle. And a Western Hockey League championship is in clear sight. It doesn't get much better than that for a junior hockey player. Everyone's really excited. I think I haven't played hockey this late in you know, my entire career. So, so being in this, in this position, uh, it's really exciting and we're really looking forward to it. You just got to be able to take it all in and kind of... Um, cherish the moment because it's pretty fun. I mean, it's pretty special. Like, if you look around the rink, they got all the seats done up and uh, it's going to be a sold-out crowd. So, um, no, you just got to take it all in and kind of have fun with it. Big props to the Prince George Spruce Kings. Last night, finished their sweep of Vernon. That's Nolan Welsh with a goal. Ben Poisson will score here. Nice. Poisson scoring there. Swept them. They were 16-1 and one in the playoffs, 16-1, and one. and for the first time ever, the Spruce Kings are the kings of the BCHL. Congratulations. The uh, season isn't over yet, but the Vancouver Warriors 
We're not about to wait to sign a new contract with team captain Matt Beers. He gets a multi-year deal after proving he is not slowing down despite this being year number nine in the National Lacrosse League. I knew I wanted to be here, but to actually get pen and paper, uh, it's just a big, a big sigh of relief because I didn't want to be anywhere else. The, the year that he's had both on the floor, off the floor, leading the team, uh, the, the meetings, the practices, yeah, this is a guy that we want to build on. And off the bench is Killen cutting around Beers, and he's peeking to the turf. One of the Beers, who is also a Burnaby firefighter, is seen as a cornerstone piece for the Warriors, a franchise that wants to be as local as possible. By Beers, what a hit. Currently, 18 of their players are based in B.C., you know, I think uh, Dan and Chris have done a really good job picking people for the team that are pillars of the community. We have firefighters, we have, you know, tradesmen, we have teachers, we have, we have people here that are inherent leaders. And now they have the leader of those leaders guaranteed for the near future. When we built this team, you know, we talked about integrity and teamwork and character and respect and community, and he has, he has all of that and more. Blue Jays were 7-4 winners in Minnesota this afternoon. I'd show you, but I'm out of time. Out of time it is. In the midst of the recent comeback of longer, shaggier beards for men, Justin, our director, has one. James, his husband, has one. Spurred to new lengths by the Stanley Cup playoffs comes some sobering news that they're not going to like. A study out of Switzerland says the average beard carries more germs than the average dog. See, that's why we don't have mm -hmm. one. Global's Joe Scarpelli reports. Wow. Well, a study says that Stango's fur might be uh, cleaner than your beard. Yeah? Oh my goodness. I don't believe that. But it's yeah, true, it's according true. to a new study. Why? Well, microbiologist and host of Chorus podcast, the super awesome science show, Jason Tetro says, a dog's fur is meant to be cleaned. A beard, on the other hand, is just kind of an extension of our grooming, if you will. There's no real purpose for a beard. And so the oils and other things that are there uh, actually attract microbes. Researchers in Switzerland were trying to find out if it would be hygienic for humans and dogs to share the same MRI scanner, until it led them to discover men's beards carry more germs than our four-legged friends. Every time you touch your beard, every time you're eating some food, every time you're coming into contact with bathrooms, <laughs> you're going to be incorporating these microbes into the beard. Tetro says even practicing good hygiene might not be good enough. Yeah. But these guys don't buy it. I don't know whose beard they were checking, but there's cleaner beards out there, I promise. I've seen dogs run in mud. I've never put my beard in a bunch of mud before. Yesterday, my big Akita came home full of cow poop all over her. I've never had cow poop in my beard. Whether you believe the study or not, you might want to think twice before sporting a playoff beard to help the Jets get into the second round. Joe Scarpelli, Global News. The Jets, the Flames, the Leafs. The Leafs, whoever else. Have you ever had a beard? You, ever. I have never. I used to grow a goatee during my vacations, but mm -hmm. then it came in real gray, and I said I'm never doing that again. <laughs> uh, quick thanks to Kayla and Daniel, our high school students who've been watching. Wave the live camera. studio audience. Thanks very much, you guys, for being good and your interest in uh, broadcasting. Always fun to have them on board. And thank you for watching. Have a great night, everyone.